My name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. I'm really excited about this episode of the podcast because we interviewed two loggers that are down in Pennsylvania near Allentown who are doing something that a lot of people think doesn't even exist anymore, which is that they're logging with horses and they're making a living at it too. Bill Bailey and Rich Dumond are our cover subjects for our April magazine. We got to speak with them in depth about things from how you lay out a logging job when you're working with horses to how you make the economics of it work to what your family is going to think about you if you quit your stable job as a teacher and start logging with horses. So I really enjoyed those interviews and we've got them coming along with a chat with Christine McGowan who works for the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund and who has been doing a lot of really exciting work to promote the timber harvesting industry in Vermont. This month we have a sponsor for the podcast which is great. John Deere. I'm sure that if you were listening to this podcast, you were familiar with John Deere's products. And here's what you need to know. To find success in the forest, you can wait for the perfect set of conditions, or you can give yourself every advantage to create your own perfect conditions. As the worldwide leader in forestry, John Deere is best equipped to provide these advantages with productive machines, innovative technology, useful insights, and dependable support. The obstacles to success, you know if you're a logger, are many. So look to John Deere and they will help you outrun all of those obstacles. All right, well, let's hear from Rich and Bill. Hey Bill, can you hear me all right? I can hear you fine. Um, so I wanted to, you know, we do this audio program every month it's just a time when, you know, I like to talk to people a little bit more about their backstory and where they came from and how they got into the industry and then, you know, what changes you've seen over the course of your career. So, yeah, I guess we could start at the beginning. Um, you know, you were telling me about when you were a young man and, and you first got started with a woods horse, and I'd love uh, for our readers to be able to get the full story on that yeah it's a this kind of man stopped at my landing one day to talk and i mentioned i might want to buy a horse sometime i'd like to try horses my grandfather had used them but i'd never been around them and this man just happened to know where there was one for sale and so pretty much sight unseen i bought this horse that's kind of where the horse logging started. The and logging, how, how old were you at that point? Uh, I was probably maybe 20 then, 20, 21, something like that. But I'd always, just always was interested in logging. I always wanted to log. What do you think drew you to that? Uh, I guess I just like being in the woods. When I'm not logging, I spend most of my time wandering around in the woods, either fishing or hunting or just wandering around. When you first got started, I mean, you know, what was it like having never worked with horses before and, and just being thrown into it? I was kind of uh, 
excellent. I was very nervous about it. I had an old friend who had something come and tell me he'd help me get started with it. And the whole upshot of that was he looked at the horse and said, well, he did good, but the collar's upside down. So that's how much I knew. <laughs> and he took him down the road and came back up and said, there you go. He's too much worse for me. And I talked to other, you know, older people about it. Just kind of got thrown right in there. And he was a Woodsboro horse, and he actually did, did know a lot more than I did when I started, and he taught me a lot. He was he was also a horse that really would not hurt you if he could help it. If you were in a bad position, he would either stop or not move at all. So then, uh, you know, what is it like getting started with a horse that's not Woodsboro? You have to know not only the logging and how the logs will react, but you have to know horses too. Where you've got an awfully, awfully lot of learning to do at one time. But, uh, so yeah, it's once you understand how it should work, it's not really that bad to take a horse and teach it to work in the woods. Especially if they're already broken. A lot of temperament issues come with that also, horse temperament issues. Some will never be a woods horse at all. And and what is it that you look for in a woods horse? Uh, calmness, willingness to pull, because at times they have to pull more than they really should. They just, that's the way it is, you know, it's. So calmness and willingness to pull, and if you can, and gentleness, you, you really, if you want a really good one, you want one that's going to look out for you, as well as you trying to keep them from getting injured. That's pretty much it, just in general. Uh, just take them to work, I guess. You know, it's like around the barn, you, you, of course, you curry every day and feed. They learn that that's where their food comes from. And, and then you just go to the woods with them and convince them that you're not going to get them hurt, even in situations where they think they are going to get hurt. And then you build a trust between the two of you. You really do. My my horse that I, I haven't been using very much lately, but uh, she was at the point with me where most days I would just lead her back to the woods and back her in without lines and hook her and then tell her to go and follow her out, and she would follow voice commands. Wow. I want to talk to you about the, you know, the logging aspect of it, because... You started logging back in the late '60s, right? Right. And uh, you know, what is your forest manage? What are your thoughts about forage man forest management? Forest management, at least in the private sector, has suffered in this state from fragmentation. And people who buy ground and are trying to turn some money to help pay for it, I think management suffers then. 
even if there's been a plan in the past, it tends to get short-circuited when someone needs money, especially on smaller pieces of that. When I first started cutting, we pretty much didn't even look at a hardwood tree that was under 22, 24 inches at the stump. And now an 18-inch tree is looked at as pretty good timber around here. It's just, you know, it's everything is getting smaller, it seems like, all the time. There are some that, you know, we're still trying to manage on that larger diameter rotation. But, you know, logging with horses, you all have to stay in pretty high-value stands, right? Absolutely. You can work lower-value stands, but you better have everything working just right, and you're, you will not make as much money. You won't. Uh, you make a living with it in most stands. You really want to stay away from pulpwood. It's just too time-consuming, although we do produce some. But yeah, high-value stands, uh, you can make a good living with horses. What is it that do you think that draws your clients to, you know, want, want a logger that's working with horses? I think for some of them, it's the novelty, actually. And for some of them, it's the lighter footprint on their land. Uh, but those are the people that, tend not to be all that concerned about the amount of dollars they're going to get from this timber harvest. Or at least they want to make money on their timber harvest, but it's not what drives the harvest for them. The management is the driving force. Right. And so, you know, I know you've had some very long-term people who you've worked with in their stands. You were telling me something about a you know somebody that you'd been with for 25 years or so is that right uh more than that there's two stands one i just finished the other one i probably never will but i have worked on those two pieces of ground for 40 years wow and it's just a matter of we go in and select cut this area then i go back and select cut that area and i've actually worked over the same ground that i started on 40-something years ago there. And now the one, they're a little older than I am, and we pretty much closed that job out this year. He wanted to take some profit out of it. But he still has, uh, he still probably has three or 4,000 board feet per acre of hardwood timber. Hmm. And this is after, you know, doing the last round of it, and like I told him, now it's your daughter's turn, you know. I don't, he's not going to sell anymore, and I'm pretty sure I won't be around to cut it in 15 or 20 years. Right. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of curiosity about logging with horses, um, just in terms of, you know, I think people are curious about the economics of it, um, but also, uh, you know, I think it's, it, it's something that... Um, people just don't see every day and um but you know my understanding is that you and rich make a good living with it um can you talk a little bit about you know just how how you make it work yeah we make a pretty good living at it um how do you make it work i guess you just go to work and as you say you try to stay in high value stands although it's not always what we do keep 
your expenses down. You know, we neither one of us drive brand new pickups. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. And you just keep expenses down. That's all. And but we do make we. I think I just finished putting all my paperwork together here, and I think if you're interested. I think I grossed sixty-five thousand last year. Wow. I mean, you know, that's that's really respectable. And that's, you know, working with a partner, that was my gross. But the really nice part of that is I will net, after expenses, almost 50%. I'll net 40% of the wow. expenses, which is the big difference between a mechanized a right. mechanized crew could not operate on $65,000. Right, right. And actually, a friend of mine went into a pretty big one year, and I, I, I think I grossed... 70 that year and kept 50 or 60 percent that year hmm. he grossed almost 400,000 and kept 10. Oh my god wow it was not, a, not a good year for Michael. Wow I mean yeah, that's a lot of his keeping expenses down. Yeah right. right so but you've worked I mean you've operated some uh, mechanized stuff over the years I have. right? I have yeah. And um, you know having done that I mean what was it that brought you back to working with the horses? Well, that's the primary requisite for working with horses. you got to like horses. <laughs> right. And I like working with them. And, and there are several, I mean, there are a lot of people that are just not cut out for it. It's, it's too slow. They don't like dealing with another brain on the job that does not always go the way you want to go. Whatever the reason, some people are not cut out to work with them. That's all. And I just, I've really loved it since I started working with them. And I think Rich is the same way. All right. Well, uh, that, you know, I think that that's good. I think that um, it'll be a good interview and that people really enjoy hearing you talk more about what you do. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for making time this evening. You are entirely welcome. I very much enjoyed it. Enjoyed meeting you and having you on the job tonight. Hi there, this is Eileen again. So I just wanted to thank our sponsor, John Deere. To find success in the forest, you can wait for the perfect set of conditions, or you can give yourself every advantage to create your own as the worldwide leader in forestry, John Deere is best equipped to provide those advantages with productive machines, innovative technology, useful insights, and dependable support. The obstacles to success are many. Look to John Deere to help you outrun them all. I also wanted to talk about something that we have going on with the Northeastern Loggers Association that if you are in the industry in Pennsylvania, you need to be aware of. The Loggers Plus Expo is going to be held at the Bloomsburg Fairgrounds in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania on April 26th through 27th. And this show is a big expo that's aimed primarily at forest industry folks, people that do tree care and other related woods products professionals. But we're open to everybody. Bring your family, uh, introduce them to the shiny big machines of the industry and uh, folks that you might know from around the mid-Atlantic region. 
Uh, we're going to have 100 exhibitors and probably 3,000 attendees. We're going to have a barbecue. There's a lot going on that's very exciting. So get down to the Loggers Plus Expo at the Bloomsburg Fairgrounds. That's April 26th through 27th. All right, back to the podcast. Particularly, you know, I wanted to start with talking about how you got involved in this industry, because I know your path into the industry is a little bit different than some people's. Sure. Yeah, um, well, I, I uh, used to be a school teacher. I went through about six years of college and graduate school altogether and uh, was a full-time teacher for about seven years. And uh, soon after I transitioned uh, into being self-employed with my farrier business, uh, shoeing horses, uh, Bill had given me a call to schedule an appointment to get his one remaining horse that he still uses in the woods occasionally. He wanted to get shoes on her. And uh, as I was shoeing her, we were talking about my horses and he asked if I would be interested in bringing them out into the woods sometime if he if he got jobs where a team of horses was required because he was known in this area for a real long time as a horse logger, really the only horse logger around here. And so people still knew him as that and would call him looking for uh, uh, looking for somebody to do logging jobs with horses and since he only had the one he was sort of limited in what he was able to do so anyway i agreed and uh from there it took a couple years it, it until our schedules kind of worked out as soon as we were able we made it happen and really within months we had years worth of work at least that's the way that it seemed partly because of the number of people that i knew i've lived in the same area my whole life and so word spread quickly that I was working with Bill and also uh, because of his customer base that he already had intact. And uh, so, yeah, it, it really took off quickly from there. I think that my next question is probably a question anybody would ask, which is that you're a pretty young guy. I mean, you're in your 30s, right? Yep. And yep. and so you're getting started in this industry that I think a lot of people probably don't even know exists anymore. Um you know, what it, what's it like to be looking at your career at this point and, and saying, I'm, you know, uh, going into something that people don't know a lot about and probably a lot of people would think, not knowing anything about it, that it's not even economically viable anymore. Well, it's, it's actually surprising how, how much sense it makes economically. It's all about scale. I'm never going to compete with mechanized crews that are producing multiple loads a day but that's sort of the beauty of it because I'm not uh, I'm not pressured by uh, how much I produce so much as the service that I provide it's a it's a different approach to business and it's a different approach to competition we're able to go into woodlots where mechanized crews are either not welcome or are not able to access them. One of the things that became pretty evident early on was people who might be opposed to to dealing with loggers, so to speak, or they might be they they have a they have an image of logging that may not be accurate, but it's their perception, so it's what governs their decisions. 
but when they see horses show up, all of that goes away. So right, right, right. It's, uh, it's sort of an interesting niche, and and we have a lot of work that's not necessarily niche related. There are jobs that could be done with machinery that are still, um, it still makes sense economically to to do it with horses. But then there are also jobs that where it's just not an option, and you have to know which jobs to say no to when you're doing this kind of work because um, there are, especially in hilly terrain, there are jobs where it's not fair to the horses, and it, and it's really not economical to try to produce uh, timber enough to make a living when you're using animals on on terrain that is working against you. So. Um, as far as getting into it at this age, uh, of course, Bill is a great example of somebody who's done this type of work for a real long time. He's in his 70s now, and one of the things that's a benefit of working with him is he knows how to – he knows the limitations of the human body, and he knows the effects of hard work when you're young uh, and how that feels when you're old. So there are times where he will – encourage me not to even if i'm physically capable of it he'll encourage me not to do certain things that may end up taking a toll on my body in the long run because it's a much different approach than using machinery and you're in situations where you do have to use your body more in some cases so um so that's helpful but uh really this is something that simply would not have been feasible for me without without a teacher and a mentor like bill I do know some young guys that have gotten into it uh, without somebody like Bill, and they're doing an excellent job, but it's a much slower process for them to get established than it has been for me with somebody like Bill. Really, Bill has so much experience and knowledge that I am the only the only limitation is the rate at which I can pick it up. <laughs> so, right. Uh, it's been a real benefit to me to be able to sort of study under somebody like Bill, and that has really given me a good start to this industry, and I feel like I'm farther ahead than I would be by far if I if this was something I sort of set out to learn on my own. Right, right. Um, so can you talk to me about your relationship with the horses, uh, Hershey and Jack, that you have? Yeah, Um so I got Hershey and one other horse uh, when I was starting out. Just I, I knew sort of what I wanted to do, but I I didn't know how I was going to get there. And I bought these two horses. Hershey was uh, still a yearling. And the other horse I got was only three. And neither of them were very well schooled. So Hershey was really the first horse that I trained. And in the process, she trained me, I always say. And uh, so she and I have have a interesting relationship where we got to know each other from scratch. She had she hadn't really had too many experiences, whether positive or negative, with anybody. So she was more or less a blank slate. But she's also incredibly intelligent. So she was a real challenge as somebody who was green starting off with this. Uh, Jack came to me as a former Amish horse. So he was very familiar with this type of work, but um, he had some fear issues when I got him, which can be 
just because of the type of horse he is, and it can also be because of uh, possibly poor experiences in the past. But I had to take – Jack was sort of the opposite of a blank slate, and I had to build his trust when he was not inclined to trust me, whereas Hershey was was more or less happy to do anything because she had never – I mean, she was a blank slate. So um, – so two very different ends of the spectrum, even the way that they work. Hershey is very assertive and approaches work aggressively. She's very eager about it. Uh, Jack thinks things through a little bit more and waits for guidance. So um, it is a, although they're both more or less built the same and doing the same type of work, there are definitely two very individual relationships with each horse. And so, the process of learning to work them together and to be productive uh, has been really interesting. And it's something that uh, it's something I think, especially in logging and I didn't start right out. I, I've I had these horses for, for several years before I started logging. Um, it's, it, it requires a lot of patience and a lot of dedication that aspect of things, especially when you're working in the woods. And I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why it's not appealing to many people is because it can be difficult to work your way through all of that while also earning a living. And uh, so that's one of the, I mean, I, I say it's very economically feasible and it doesn't require as much overhead and debt and that sort of thing. But the, the personal component of it, is a entirely different type of challenge, especially for somebody that didn't grow up with horses and that had to learn all of this from scratch, which was the situation that I was in seven or eight years ago. I, I did not grow up with horses. And so I was really starting from scratch with, with my mare Hershey. Hmm. What, what do you think the biggest learning curve has been? Um, let's see. I think... I think a big, I don't know if this was the necessarily the biggest learning curve, but the biggest challenge is communicating calmly and confidently with, with them, especially with a horse like Hershey, because she's so tuned into everything that if you are anxious and you're not confident, she's either going to walk all over you and do whatever she wants, or she's going to absorb that anxiety and potentially put you in really dangerous situations. So um, the thing that took the most time for me anyway was learning to be the type of, you could say, leader or teamster that a horse ha has confidence in. Um, if you go about it, if you go about this type of work in a nervous or anxious way, it's it's very dangerous because uh, even even calm horses will pick up on that. Um, as far as this type of work, as, as far as the learning curve of this type of work, it's just a ton of, of little details. You have to pay attention to so many small details, uh, from hazards that could injure a horse if something goes wrong, um, the way the logs behave on different types of terrain, where to position yourself when the horses are starting a load um, because the logs can roll depending on the pitch of the ground or um, 
if your footing's not good, if you're working in mud or ice or there are roots or briars that you could trip over, uh, you might start off in a safe position, but if you end up on the ground, the log could run you over. So there's a lot of little details that, that pertain to safety. And then, of course, producing logs that are marketable, and that's where Bill has been especially beneficial because he understands so much about the markets and and different species and uh, which logs you want to try to put the defects in and which logs you want to buck buck to avoid different defects. Uh, so it's really just a load of details from top to bottom, from working with the animals to producing logs that buyers want to buy. Right. So, I mean, can you talk to me a little bit more about uh, those, you know, long-term forage management, forest management uh, strategies that you've been learning about and incorporating into your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in recent years, I've developed some friendships <clears throat> with some people in, in this living the same lifestyle and participating in the same industry. Uh, and one of them is a man by the name of Jason Rutledge who's been around quite a long time. He's a man similar to Bill. Uh, he lives in the mountains down in Virginia. And he coined this term, uh, worst first forestry management, uh, which is the idea that you, rather than going in and taking the nicest trees first, you take the ones that have defects or are past their prime. They may be over mature. Maybe they have uh, wind damage or they have, uh, they have, felling damage from a previous harvest and you take those first so that the healthiest trees remain and, and the neat thing is bill bill never necessarily put a, a catchphrase with that or coined any uh coined any cool terms but he has always practiced exactly the same thing whether he's using a machine or he's using horses he um he is always, he never said it in the words worst first, but it was always the idea that you go after the trees that have defects. Um, there have been a lot of jobs that we've been on, and I would say, do you want me to cut this tree? Because it's clearly flawed, and we might only get one log out of it. And one of the things that Bill will say to me is, do you think that tree is going to get any better? And if a tree is not going to get any better, even if it's not going to be very profitable to us to take the time to harvest it, uh, he will instruct me to harvest it because if it's not going to be of benefit to the stand or to wildlife even, then uh, there's really no sense in leaving it there as far as the long-term management goes. Whereas if you're simply harvesting timber for profit taking, those are the types of trees you want to avoid. And so it's a, Long-term management is a very different approach. It's approaching it from the opposite end of the spectrum. But the neat thing to see is with Bill, he has been managing certain stands of timber for 40 and 50 years. And so now you can go into those stands where he's been managing ever since he was a young man. And it's all high-quality, high-value timber. And it's very diverse. Um, you can you can see that he intentionally did not wipe out one species or another. Um, the only cases where we look to do that sort of thing is is in this part of the country, especially we've been dealing with the eastern ash bore or the the emerald ash bore, and uh, 
And so we will go in and we'll take out stands of ash. But aside from something like that, um, the stands that I've seen that Bill has managed over the decades are very diverse. They're very healthy and they have very high quality trees at all stages of uh, trees life cycle from, from saplings to intermediate to mature. Um, so it's really neat for me to be able to see that that's the end result of this sort of practice. And uh, for a young guy who's kind of used to being in a hurry, that's encouraging because it's easy to, it's easy to want to go after the nice trees, but when you see what the end result is, that's encouraging to, uh, to kind of stay the course and practice the so-called worst first uh, timber management, because it really does, it pays everybody. It pays, it pays the environment, it pays the landowner and it pays the harvester when, when you practice that over the long run. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, just out of my curiosity, you know, how does your family feel about uh, the path that you're taking right now in life? Uh, it kind of, it kind of shook my family up a little bit when I made the decision to leave a good teaching career to be self-employed. Um, as far as working in the woods with Bill, I think that my excitement has been evident to them. And, and so they have been supportive purely in the beginning, purely based on my excitement. And now that they've seen uh, how much work there is and the need for it. Um, aside from safety concerns, really my entire family is very supportive of it. They think it's fascinating and they're, they're interested in it. Although it's, uh, it's something quite different than what most of my family is involved in. Uh, most of my family is self-employed. I have several, several siblings that are self-employed and, and so they understand that driving passion but uh none of them work in the woods or or in the timber or lumber industry so it's so it's something that's a little bit foreign but uh the the work interests them and they've been supportive of it uh and they also know bill so they so they know that I'm learning from one of the best and that kind of excites them as well hmm. And then, uh, so you've got a, is it a three-year-old daughter? I do, yeah. She was actually just here. <laughs> and she's, and uh, she, it seems like she's really interested in the horses and pretty uh, enthralled by all of it. Yeah, she is. She, um, she will occasionally tell me that they are her horses. <laughs> and that when she gets, and when she gets a little bigger, she says she's going to, She's going to drive the horses with the log cart for me and I, I can cut the trees and she's going to drag them out. So, uh, my wife, my wife is also a photographer. And so, uh, there are days where my wife has time available that she'll come out and take pictures of the work that we're doing. And, uh, she'll bring Savannah, my daughter along. And so Savannah will, when, it, when it's safe, Savannah will ride on the cart with me. Wow. Um, and she really likes to be, right there in the middle of it she puts her hands on the line so she can feel like she's driving the horses and um so it's neat to see that excitement in her this is strangely enough this is something that i've really been interested in ever since 
I was maybe five years old, and I don't know why, except that my mom was interested in horses. She used to ride when she was young, and and so she would always give me horse books. And there was a – this is just an anecdote, but I when I was seven years old, I was given a the encyclopedia book of, uh, of horses when I was seven. That was a Christmas present. And in that book, there was – one of the biggest pictures in that book was a pair of Belgians uh, pulling a weighted sled at a horse pole. Oh, wow. And – for some reason that image sticks out in my mind I still have that book and I remember thinking when I get big I'm gonna have a pair of workhorses <laughs> and uh so anyway uh it's neat to see those same interests in my in my child now uh yeah and it's really neat for me to be able to share that with her because I wasn't in a position where I could have animals when I was that young and, and so it's it's cool to kind of see it uh come full circle a little bit in that regard yeah I mean uh what a what a cool experience to have growing up yeah yeah well listen rich i don't want to keep you all afternoon i know you've got plenty of things to do yeah yeah thank you um we've we've enjoyed it and we appreciate the work you did in the article it was really a great piece and uh i don't know if you'll be at the loggers expo in bloomsburg but yeah. bill and i will be down there so great we'll run into you. all right well i'll see you in a couple of weeks then So just to get started, can you tell me your name and uh, what your position is? Yeah, I'm Christine McGowan, and I'm the Forest Products Program Director at the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund. Cool. I, you know, I've heard the name Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund, and I've seen some uh, articles that have come out that are associated with the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund, but can you tell me a little bit more about what you all do? Sure. We work in economic development in a few key uh, sectors. Um, we're probably most well-known for our work in food systems and agriculture. We manage the farm-to-plate network, which is a really successful network that brings together everyone involved in our food system to try to help Vermonters access local food. So we've been doing that for quite a while, but we also work with other sectors, including the forest uh, product sector, wood product sector, clean energy sector and uh, waste management. So we look to try to help those companies in those sectors to thrive and help them to, yeah, just achieve success. And so can you tell me a little bit about your background? How did, how did you um, come to be doing this work? And, you know, uh, what is it particularly that you do within uh, the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund? Sure. Well, my background is actually in journalism and uh, communications. I spent about a decade as a print journalist, and um, I did that in Texas and in Washington, D.C., and I decided to switch careers. I still have many friends in the print journalism world, and I I love it, but I was sort of seeing the writing on the wall that it was uh, a tough tough place to be. So I switched careers and got into advocacy communication for the conservation arena. So I worked for uh, a few different conservation organizations, just working on wildlife and uh, land conservation, those sorts of issues. This job, so those jobs I was doing remotely, I had moved to Vermont and I was sort of remotely working 
in D.C., and I finally got to a point in my life where I decided I really just wanted to work and live in Vermont. And this opportunity came up to work for the Jobs Fund, and part of my role does do some communication work, so I think it was a good kind of combo of my my skills. Great. Um, And so you've been uh, writing stories about the forest products industry. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the stories that you've told as a part of this job? Yeah. Well, one of the aspects of my role uh, as this program director working with our forest and wood products industry is to help elevate the profile of the industry itself. Um, You know, people love our forests and uh, I think they love our wood products that come out of Vermont, but people don't necessarily know or understand the people or the businesses in between. And so one of my goals is to really, through this work of telling stories of the businesses in the forest and wood products uh, sectors, is to help people make those connections between those trees and forests that they love and actually the people behind bringing them the products and services that our forests provide. So it's been a really exciting project. Um, We've told stories about everybody from landowners to loggers and sawmills and the secondary wood products uh, companies like furniture makers and just a whole slew of people who are involved in some aspect of wood. Right. You've been on both sides of the fence. You've you worked for conservation, and now you work for as an advocate for the industry. And I, I think that some people would see those two as opposed. There's also a lot of similar conversations, I think, that could be had. Can you talk a little bit about the your perspective, having worked for a conservation organization and for a, a sustainable jobs fund? Sure. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, given my background, um, I think there are were some in the industry that were probably a little skeptical of, you know, what is this person doing coming from the conservation world? Sometimes I think our forest products industry um, can be on opposite sides with some in the conservation community. Although my feeling and, and what I've experienced since I've taken on this role is that there's more, we have more in common than we are opposed. And so I guess where I see sort of my role is is knowing that perspective of the conservation community not every perspective but i you know i think i have a a good idea of sort of where a lot of groups um tend to fall on um issues of land conservation for example um but now being able to really work with the industry and businesses to see you know what are the issues they're facing what are the pain points for them as business owners um, what are some of the areas where perhaps we can find some common ground? I mean, I actually think that by bringing these sides together to really talk and, and understand one another, I think, again, we're going to find that we probably have more in common um, than we realize. And so hopefully, you know, when people come together, they build some relationships um, and maybe even some friendships, uh, they can find that we can work through some of these issues and, and not necessarily have to be opposed. Um, and again, you know, I, I've worked with the industry and, um, you know, gone out on log jobs uh, with some loggers. And I find that, you know, by and large, they are some of the most dedicated people to conserving wildlife habitat. I mean, they really care because they're out in the woods all day. They They really understand it. And so, again, I think we have more in common than we have 
kind of opposed. Definitely. While we've got you, can you tell us a little bit about the upcoming the Forest Industries Summit? Yeah, the Vermont Forest Industry Summit. So what this is, this is an annual gathering that we've been doing. This will be our second annual. Last year, when we did the summit, um, we launched what we call now the Vermont Forest Industry Network. And that network is uh, becoming a more formalized network of people throughout the entire industry. So again, like looking at all the different supply chains uh, from landowners all the way to those end products that we you know, use in our everyday lives um, when it comes to wood and bringing all of those people together to help them, you know, seize opportunities or address challenges together. And so that's what the network is for. And so the summit is this annual event that brings everyone together and we talk about different topics that are emerging for different aspects of the industry. And we really try to bring people from throughout those supply chains together to talk about those issues so that we can, again, come up with some solutions or um, identify some opportunities that might be good business opportunities for people within the industry. And when, when is the summit? Yeah, this year it's May 2nd and 3rd. Um, and it's at Burke Mountain Resort, the hotel and conference center in East Burke. Uh, we had it there last year, and everybody loved it. It's a beautiful location. Um, it's so apropos, I guess, to have a, a, a summit uh, dealing with our forest and wood products industry to be in the Northeast Kingdom where we are surrounded by amazing forests and um, people in the industry that have just such a rich history of forest and wood products there. Mm. Great. And, and so if uh, somebody wanted to sign up for this summit, uh, how would they go about that? Yeah. So on the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund website, um, there is, unfortunately, it's not an easy uh, link to click. I should see if we can come up with a better one. But you can find the Forest Products Program. And when you go to that tab, you'll see uh, notification about the summits and you can register right from there. And it's a it's a two day um, two day summit. It starts the Thursday the second uh, in the afternoon. I think it starts at two, and we go. People stay overnight. It's great fun. Um, we're going to have a wonderful dinner um, and a special presentation by one of our sponsors, Cabot Creamery. They are celebrating their centennial this year, and they really want to, as part of that, give back to our working lands companies. And so they're going to be there um, to show a special video that we're doing with them. Um, and then, yeah, and then the next day we're going to have um, programming from the morning through to lunch. So the registration covers your uh, registration for the event, but also your accommodation and all the meals. Cool. All right. That sounds good. And uh, thank you for making time to come on the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks. And keep up the great work on the podcast. I'm an avid listener. 